Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. So the first week, just a little review, the first week of our study, if, you, if, this, is your, if this is your first time to be here, we talked about how God's ways are mysterious, and although his ways are a mystery to us, oftentimes, even to Habakkuk, the prophet, we should not doubt the love or the justice of God. Week two, in our perplexity and our misunderstanding, we sometimes approach our problems in the wrong way. So we talked about the importance of approaching God with the right method uh, to understand, first starting with affirming his word and his promises to us, and then also affirming who he is. And being a teacher, we have acronyms, more than I can count, and S-E-H-A-F, E-S-E-H-A-F, helped me to remember who God is, eternal, self-existent, holy, almighty, and faithful. And we talked about that in week two. And Miss Tommy White gave a wonderful testimony of her dependence on, on the Lord, uh, affirming who he is in the midst of trial. And then week three, we talked about waiting on the Lord and how patience is necessary when we misunderstand or experience difficulty. And Alex Kalikovich gave a wonderful testimony from his family's perspective and how faithful God is. And in week three, we talked about whenever we ask the Lord for help, we are his children if he is our father, and we should expect an answer. And God is always faithful in that respect. So now we're in week four. The just shall live by faith. We're going to be covering in Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 4 through 20, and that is quite a large amount of verses compared to the three that we had last week, but they are chunked together, and I think we'll get a lot out of it. We are going to be assured this morning that God will do two things. He will assure his people that he will humble the pride of their enemies. We would call them the wicked, the unrighteous, and God's judgments are sure, and we will be learning about that. Also, another theme, the salvation of the faithful. God is always faithful in all that he does, including the salvation of his children. In Habakkuk's time, there were wicked people, the Chaldeans. And if you were to ask the Israelite on the street who was the most wicked, they would say, it's those Babylonian Chaldeans. They were comparing themselves to the wickedness that they saw in the Chaldeans because they were so ruthless and they were a warring people. We should always remember that every heart of man is sinful. So even though we talk about the wicked Chaldeans, we could also put ourselves in that, in that position. So... Uh, let's think about that as we go through our morning. We'll be talking about in verse 4 that the proud person then is contrasted with the righteous and what that looks like. 
So we have five principles that we will be walking through to help us understand these things, thinking back to Habakkuk's time and paralleling that with our experience today. We first need to look at our events in the present as well as historical events in light of God's kingdom. Now, as we think about the kingdom of God, that necessitates a sovereign, a king, some monarch who is in charge, and we recognize God as our sovereign king of his kingdom. With that in mind, people usually uh, use the synonym providence and equate sovereignty and providence as the same thing, and a couple of weeks ago I saw a video that John Piper released, and he's been on a 12-week writing hiatus, and his new book focuses on the differentiation between sovereignty and providence. We would all say that God is almighty, that he has power and authority unmatched. He is the subject of no one, that is sovereignty. Providence is the directed order of God's plans to a certain end as he provides the means for that end to come to pass. He is taking the universe in a certain decreed direction. It's not just that he rules unopposed but that he is providing every necessary component to see that his purposes are fulfilled. The Chaldeans were one of those means to his end. He was chastising Israel because they were serving other gods. And this is what God does. He uses at anything at his disposal, nations, experiences. Uh, John Piper has a book called Don't Waste Your Cancer. Why did he write that book? Because he believes, as we should, that everything in our life has purpose and meaning because God has a purpose and an end that all of history is moving towards. So historically, God has used literally all nations to further his plans, not just with the nation of Israel, but also in the life of his church for the past 2,000 years. When we see these Chaldeans raised up against Israel, we must keep in mind that God has an eternal purpose for doing so. When we see world powers raised up to persecute the church today, in our present time, we must remember there is eternal purpose in every stone thrown gun-fired or knife-wielded against God's sheep. Yes, there's mystery in this, but interpreting the events of history and in our own experience in light of God's coming kingdom, everything that he is bringing to pass, will give us a clearer understanding of that past and our present time. Just as Jesus prayed, thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that is free of sin, seeing him for who he is. We cannot 
see that right now, but it is coming. All world events are leading us to that end. And thankfully, as believers, the faithful can rest peacefully in that knowledge. Our second principle this morning, our perplexities are nothing new. When the unbeliever looks at history outside and apart from God, they may see chaos, they may see survival of the fittest, every man for himself, only the strong will survive. And then they hear about God and his purposes, and they're skeptical. If God's so loving, why did A happen? And I saw B occur to my next-door neighbor, and they're a good guy. Skeptics are nothing new. Scoffers are nothing new. In the time of Noah, Noah was trusting in God's promise and his commands. There were scoffers for 120 years. Sodom and Gomorrah. Scoffers. People unrighteous and wicked before God. So this is nothing new. Our time has scoffers and skeptics. You may be a scoffer or a skeptic. Even Christians are tempted to ask in times of trial, where is the promise of his coming? The Israelites in Habakkuk's time, where is God in our suffering? In Psalm 44, 22 through 26, David writes that we are persecuted all the day long. And that's echoed in Romans 8.36. Do you really think there is a God? Do you think there's a God who will help, who has promised he will save? To both the skeptic and the scoffer, one answer has resounded through the ages. God is not slack concerning his promise. Last week we read this verse. In chapter 2, verse 3, the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Where is the promise of his coming? We know that in Revelation, God has given us a promise that contains a message of consolation, not just for the first century Christians, but also for Christ's people at all times and in all places. Which then leads us to verse 4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. So we have the two people contrasted. There are two ways to live based on the human reason, which is akin to basic unbelief, or the way of faith. Human reason, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. Faith in God's promise. The righteous or the just 
shall live by faith. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 37 through 39, there's this time aspect again. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. A little while, 2,000 years. Remember, a day to the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as a day. We know that time to God is not a factor. He is eternal. So, a very little while, 2,000 years to us is not a very little while, but that is not the issue. Time is not the issue. It is his promise. That is the issue. He who is coming will come and will not delay. My righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, doubts, rejects, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith in the persevering of the soul. And Lloyd-Jones writes, this is the great watershed of life. And all of us are on one side or the other. You are either drawing back into doubt and fear, rejection of God's promises, or living by faith. We'll either listen to the expert scoffers and skeptics of our day, and they're very wise in their own eyes, or we will listen to God. The world gives reasons, but God gives his word. Which will we believe? Which means we must choose. There are two alternatives, only two, and Lloyd-Jones calls this an unavoidable necessity. Whether we desire it or not, we will choose one or the other. And our end individually depends upon it. The biblical way is living by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Faith means believing, trusting what God has said. The heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith chapter in the Bible, believed God's word and acted on it or lived by it in all that they did. Abraham took Isaac to Mount Moriah. Why? Because he was commanded to do so. Living by faith is more than a single event. It means basing your whole life upon faith in God. Believers are described as seeing him who is invisible. Other examples of men and women in Scripture who acted on the bare word of God, can you think of any in Scripture that are inspiring to you? And when you're faced with a fiery trial, you refer to that person, that person of faith. Does anyone immediately come to mind someone in the Bible that they look to? Joseph. Joseph. Job, 
Christ, Paul, Paul. who was that? Mary, Mary, absolutely, Daniel, Stephen, and Ruth, all men and women of faith, and some gave their life in faith. Early Christians often suffered and were willing to lose all things. Why? Because they believed the bare word of God. Scripture alone, they didn't have the Bible. They had the word of God. They had their Torah. They had the law. And they had God's promises. And when Christ came, he gave them promises and reaffirmed what the Old Testament said. And then we also have the promises of the apostles that the Holy Spirit communicated, which is our book of Revelation, for instance. Based on the truths that these early Christians believed, they refused to bow to Caesar, fill in the blank, their own pride. They refused to bow to idols. They refused to bow to any other besides God and his promise. And by doing so, many died in the faith of this good news of Christ. On page 42 in our book, the last paragraph says, this is our position. We share that position as Christians today. The choice is being forced upon us more and more. Is there anyone still foolish enough to bank on this world and what it has to offer? What is this controlling principle in our lives? Is it calculation? Is it worldly wisdom? A shrewd, balanced view of history and human knowledge? Or is it the Word of God? Warning us that this life and this world are only transient, and that both are merely a preparation for the world to come. It does not tell us to turn our backs entirely upon the world, but it does insist that we have the right view of the world. It emphatically states that what really matters is the coming of God's kingdom. We must ask ourselves, as in the presence of God, which we are this morning, this simple question. Is my life based upon the faith principle? Am I submitting myself to the fact that what I read in the Bible is the Word of God and is true? And am I willing to stake everything, my life included, upon this fact? For the just, the righteous, believers shall live by faith. Which leads us now to the destruction of evil and the triumph of God. Both of these are certain. You may one day give your life for the sake of the gospel. We don't know our futures, but we can be certain of this. God will triumph in that. We can also be sure that as evil and the wicked rise to prominence, 
control and authority that they think are theirs are temporary. There are five woes in Habakkuk chapter 2 that assure us that everything evil is under God's judgment. In verse 6, it says, Will not all of these take up a taunt song against him? All these scoffers back in Habakkuk's day. Even mockery and insinuations against him and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his. For how long? And makes himself rich with loans. He's talking first about the... uh, greedy plunderer as Habakkuk looks out at these Chaldeans taking what's not theirs by force but he says for how long it's temporary we we also see in verse 9 woe to the opulent cheater the cheater and in verse 9 it says woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to put his nest on high. To be delivered from the hand of calamity. You have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many peoples, so you are sinning against yourself. There may be people in this room who have got evil gain for his house. Later it says in verse 11, that the Chaldean homes had stones and rafters crying out homes built from the lives of others. When you look at the stones in the walls, they're testifying of the cheating and what has been done to gain that house. So let us examine our lives that we are being faithful to what God has given us without oppressing others at the same time. Woe, in verse 12, to the murdering builder. Cities that are built this way will be futile and no lasting value. I'm thinking currently of the ISIS situation that we experienced that we haven't heard for a while now. But for about a year, a year and a half, we were hearing about all the cities that were being taken over in the Middle East by this ISIS force, the murderous builder. How long will they be victorious? Not long. Temporarily. Even if they reigned for a hundred years, it would still be temporary. But they would see in their own deceived hearts their own authority, but woe to the murderous builder. In verse 15, woe to the disgraceful pervert. What does this mean? The Chaldeans did not view humanity as God views humanity, with value and dignity. When they would conquer a certain people, as the Romans did, They used humans for sport and entertainment. And they would poison street uh, beggars to see them run around 
in their own shame. In verse 15 it says, Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom, even to make them drunk, so as to look on their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourself will drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand, the hand of justice, will come around to you, and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. God has a cup of wrath that the unrighteous will drink in his time and in his way. The Chaldeans, we know, would be conquered not long after their own conquering of the Israeli nation. But be sure, utter disgrace will come upon your glory. This is what we are promised. The unrighteous will be judged. And finally, in verse 19, the fifth woe is woe to the godless idolater. Verse 19 says, Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, visualize this, talking to a piece of wood, awake. To a mute stone, arise. And that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. There is no breath at all inside it. This was the Israelite problem. Graven images. Idols made by the hands of man. We have that today. It's taken a different form. We would laugh at someone who brought in a piece of stone and prayed to it because it looks utterly foolish. But we bow before ideas today. Ideas that serve our own pride. This self-esteem idea that we are so great that what we say is more valuable than what God's word says. We're bowing to the idol of self. And really that's what sin is, is bowing to our own sovereignty instead of the sovereignty of God. The Israelites were adopting gods of their neighbors instead of following the one true God. And this is why Habakkuk talks about the overladen images with gold and silver. He says there's no breath at all inside it, but the Lord is in his holy temple. That little word is, is a verb. It means to exist. He has breath. He decides the future. His promises are actively sure. The Lord is now, it's a present tense verb, in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that God is Lord.
we have the triumph of God, and this is our, uh, the climax of our song, just as in the Alleluia chorus, everyone stood. What are we promised? That every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. Everything opposed to God will be destroyed. That includes sin, thankfully. Those of you warring against the sin in your own flesh, take courage because that end is sure. Everything opposed to God will be destroyed. There will be a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. The city of God, we're told, will descend and the just will enter in. These are promises. Do we believe that? We must be silent when we are tempted to put God's promises any less than where they should be in our heart, which is in the chief position. We must remember our God and stop the complaining and the questioning of God's goodness and power and his holiness. He is ruling in his universal temple. Stop muttering against God with, I don't deserve this. Or why is this happening to me? Surely you would know that I've done so much good in my life. Stop anxiously looking about you. What should we do? We should humble ourselves before him and worship him and magnify his grace. We are all undeserving sinners. We do not deserve anything good. But he gives us his own son. And in quiet peace of heart, we should trust him and wait for him patiently. The righteous will live by his or her faith. The promise of this good news is grounded and the words of Habakkuk resound in the New Testament. We see in three different places where the righteous man shall live by faith is echoed. This is a blessed consolation to the believer. Do we believe it? Pastor Ernie included in his original notes, many of you know the answer to this first question, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Very good. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So this committee that developed the Westminster Confession was gathered to reason and know what to include because this was a very important uh, set of propositions. They came to the fourth question, what 
is God. And all the godly men working on this committee shrunk back from such a sacred task. Finally, they decided, as an expression of their deep humility, the youngest member should make the attempt. He first declined, as any reasonable person would, but then consented, but not without begging the older men around him to pray for God's help and understanding. Then in slow, solemn accents, a man, George Gillespie, began his prayer. And I love that. He wasn't just speaking to the men. He was praying. O God, thou art a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in thy being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. When he ceased, the first sentence of his prayer was immediately written down by one of the brothers there. It was read aloud and adopted as the most perfect answer that could be conceived by that gathering. So the answer to the fourth question, what is God? Spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And I'm going to end by the echoed words of Habakkuk in the New Testament. If you want to write down these references, uh, on the back of the handout there are some blank lines there. Romans 1.17, and this will piece together all of our thoughts this morning. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The next is in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. And that was saying something to the Jews of the day who depended upon their own righteousness following the law. We know and they know in their heart of hearts that no one can keep the law perfectly. That is why the righteous man can only be called righteous if he lives by his faith. And finally, and we've read it this morning, but we'll read it again. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 38. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. If this morning, as you've heard these things, 
You could have been described as a skeptic or scoffer. I cannot reason truth to you. Only the Holy Spirit of God has the ability to help us to hear and to see these truths for what they are and to believe and trust with our whole life these promises of God. So I hope they have resounded in your hearts this morning and in your minds. And is is there any thought or comment that you'd like to share as you've been listening this morning? Yeah, that's a good question. I was reading B.B. Uh, Warfield, and his depth of knowledge is very deep. And uh, I can tell you that um, his essay on faith, which is about 100 pages long, talks about the different uses of the word faith um, as a noun or as a verb to describe a person. And whenever he says, by faith, that's talking about a thing, a noun. And then whenever he says, by his faith, it's still a noun. So it's the same thing, and um, it's worded a little differently, but I would say, just based on your question, that this faith that we're talking about is a living trust in God. And it's not just in the mind, because uh, we, we talked about this in the men's breakfast, the differences between knowing about God and saying, yeah, I think there's a God, to understanding and believing, wow, Jesus Christ, he actually said he was the Son of God. But you know, even the devils believe that. They've seen him in his holy temple. They know Christ. They know he's the Son of God. That's only the second level. We have the third level, and that is this fiducia, this living faith, and that's putting on, I used the example, the parachute. Um, Sorry, men that were there the morning of the men's breakfast. I'm talking over myself, but the parachute. You know how it works? You know why people make parachutes, right? Do you believe it works? If you think that parachutes work and you've seen it work in action, that's a census, that's belief in how it works. But then fiducia is actually putting on the parachute. That's the living faith. So, and that's the faith that we're talking about, Rick, the living faith. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Gave us the breath of life 
And you see that today in the arrogance of those who think that their thoughts and their words can become reality. So this is not just the foolishness of the Chaldeans or the Israelis in Habakkuk's day, it's our own rebellion and sin and arrogance today. Very good point. Dan was saying that the foolishness that we talked about with the idolaters talking to a piece of wood is at the same time arrogance and a shaking of the fist against God who has given them life and given them, for the Israelites, a nation and his covenant promise. So it's arrogance against God. Thanks, Dan. Any other thoughts this morning? All right, well, let's close in prayer. We've got a little extra time this morning, and we'll use that time to fellowship with one another. So let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we once again thank you for our time, and we pray, Lord, that as we consider your work in history and in our own lives, that we would not be skeptical of what you are doing, but that our minds are affirmed and our hearts are fixed on your promises, just as the Israelites had to do in Habakkuk's day. And we thank you, Lord, for your word, which gives us these sure promises that we can look to whenever we begin to doubt and help us not to doubt. And we pray, Lord, for our time in the worship hour upcoming, and may you bless our time of worship and those who lead. And as we dig into your word, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.